Well, I thought we'd start the show today with a letter. Uh, this is from a longtime listener named Megan. Megan writes from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Dear Alex, does every conversation you have have a thesis? And if so, what is the thesis of today's show? Uh, Megan, great question. Um, I don't know. I think a thesis starts to emerge as the conversation uh, progresses. And by the end, if you if you look back, you'll find there's probably a secondary thesis and a primary thesis. Yeah, I think I think it's a good question, Megan. And I think the answer is sometimes yes and uh, occasionally no. I'm just trying to cover all the bases, Megan. Uh, today's show, is there a thesis? Yes, there is. And I'm not going to spoil it for you and tell you what it is before the conversation, but I will say this. I'll give you a hint. It has something to do with cupcakes, muffins, and love. I'm Alex Green. How cryptic is that? And this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. of my guest today on the program, Juliana Hatfield. Let me tell you a little bit about Juliana Hatfield. The Maine-born, Massachusetts-raised Juliana Hatfield studied at both Boston University and the Berkeley College of Music. Along with John Strom and Frida Love, she founded the Blake Babies, who put out five fabulous albums, including my personal favorite, Sunburn. One of the most potent and prolific artists out there, Hatfield has put out nearly 20 solo albums, including Hey Babe, Become What You Are, and Whatever, My Love. She's also put out full-length albums of covers by Olivia Newton-John and The Police. A rumored REM effort, by the way, is allegedly in the works. Now, she's been in a lot of bands. Uh, she was in the Juliana Hatfield 3, Minor Alps with Not A Surf's Matthew Cause, the I Don't Cares with Paul Westerberg of The Replacements, and Some Girls with Frida Love and Heidi Gluck. And don't forget, she had a stint with the Lemonheads, both recording and touring with Evan Dando's outfit. Her resume just never stops, so here's more highlights. But keep in mind, this is a partial list. She's contributed vocals to tracks by Belly, Amy Mann, and the Bangles' Susanna Hoffs. She has her own record label called Ye Old Records. She played Conan and Letterman. She appeared on The Adventures of Pete and Pete, My So-Called Life, and Space Ghost Coast to Coast. And her book, When I Grow Up, is one of the best memoirs I've ever read. All right, so all of that brings us to blood. A long way from cupcakes, muffins, and love, but we'll get there, I promise. Hatfield's new album, Blood, is a riveting affair. From the delicious distortion of the murderous Had a Dream, to the percussive blast of Chunks, to the buoyant 60s pop of Mouthful of Blood, which you just heard, the album is stirring, dark, feral, and undeniably and deliciously 
melodic. Hatfield is one of the sharpest writers around. She's always been. She's funny, smart, caustic, observant, and deeply, deeply wise. This album is open-wounded pop that's as sweet as it is raw. And I think this conversation has that same contrast. We had a blast, and I can't wait for you to hear this one. Here's me and Juliana Hatfield right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. like opposite seasonal affective disorder where where in terms of I the fact that I get kind of depressed um, when it gets hot and sunny outside and I I love the winter and the fall I love the cold and the snow and um, I love it when it gets dark really early in the daytime like four in the afternoon Um, so that's yes so I'm affected that way (laughs) That, that, is, that is literally the opposite of everything I've ever heard. Yeah, it's not like, I'm not normal, I guess. <laughs> I know, because usually when it gets dark around 4.15, you go, oh, I guess, I guess the day's over. I just love it. I don't know. There's something about, like, it feels really cozy to me, fall and winter. It's like, um, you just want to go and sort of, like, nest, you know? Yeah, and you can settle in. Yeah. Yeah, there's something... I, yeah, I guess, art, I mean, artistically, do you find that you're more creative on those cozy times? I, I think so, yeah. I think when I'm um, just kind of comfortable inside with a sweater on, I'm, I'm just much more comfortable in general than I am when, it, when there's a heat wave or something where I just, I go crazy. Humidity just makes me psychotic and it makes me so miserable. And there's just like, when there's no relief from the heat and the humidity, I just, I can't, I'm, I'm really like catatonic. I can't do anything. Yeah, I get that. Well, what if you throw a pandemic in and then you have, <laughs> I mean. It's the now, best of both worlds, really, for me. <laughs> I mean, I, of course, I feel terrible that so many people are struggling and being sick. Um, but for me, it it's kind of been fine for me even a year later? Because I noticed a lot of people I, I interviewed would say in the first two or three months, they were like, you know, I'm actually okay. Uh, mm-hmm. But then you check in nine months later and then money becomes an issue and, and touring is not happening. And then the, the anxiety sets in. A year a year on, are you still hanging tough in terms of how you feel about this? Yeah, I'm okay. I'm doing fine. And I've, I've done things to adjust. Um, I, I finally forced myself to learn how to record into my laptop. And that was something I've been putting off and putting off and be- just because I hate technology and computers, but I did that. Um, and I made this new record of mine mostly on my laptop. And then, and then I started doing, um, I'm doing once a month, I'm doing a live stream of, of a, I'm playing a different album of mine every month and from the studio near me from Q division studios. And it, that's a way that I can be sort of quasi performing and people can, you know, we can have a musical shared experience and people can donate if they want, although there's no 
there's no ticket price, but you know, people can pay what they can or not. And so I think it's, it's good for everyone because people can see quasi live music, but they don't have to pay if they can't. So I'm doing fine. I'm adjusting, you know, I'm, 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 I'm okay. Are you in terms of, you know, flexibility, are you, are you, have you been surprised that you've been this flexible about, you know, about doing two things that you normally probably wouldn't have done, right? Yes, I would not have done them. So I, I do, I do always like to um, make the most of whatever situation I'm in rather than complaining about it. I mean, I complain plenty, but I, <laughs> I do, I do, I do like to use, uh, I'm a fatalist, I guess. And I like to use what, what um whatever hands I'm, I've drawn, whatever cards I've drawn, I like to work with them. And so I used the pandemic lockdown as an opportunity to do these things and, um, that were good for me. Another thing I did was when my when my gym shut down, I started running again, which I hadn't really done since I was in college. And I, I rediscovered this love of running outdoors and I've been running all, all winter and that's been so good for me. It just feels so good. I feel like it's keep, keep helping to keep my lungs healthy, my heart healthy. And um, so, yeah, I'm trying to take advantage in the ways that I can of this situation. I don't think I'm ever going to step foot in a gym again. Me I neither. I quit. I quit my gym. I never. I was always really frustrated with it, and I'd be like, oh, "I hate this place." Sometimes, if they'd be, they'd be playing annoying music too loudly or, or something, and I'd always be complaining, like, "I'm quit. I'm gotta quit this place." And then, I, you know, I finally saw my opportunity. Fate forced me out of my gym, and I'm just happier now. Yeah, I am too. And my gym tried to lure me back, and this is the way they lured me back. And, and it obviously didn't work. They wrote to me and said, "Hey, our showers are open again." Oh, wow. <laughs> like, oh, good. I don't have one of those at home. Great. Right. Well, they, they, at one point, they were, I felt kind of bad for them because at some point near the beginning of it, they were like, you can rent our equipment. Um, rent our equipment somehow. or it, And it just felt like uh, desperate. I felt kind of bad for the, uh, for them, you know. But I think, I don't know what's going to happen. With, I hope they can get it back together again for the people who want to go there. Yeah, and I think the people who want to go there will will go, you know, hell or high water, they'll will end up back there. But yeah, I mean, I, I get how you know, exercise is sort of is emotionally resetting for me. So I needed to sort of do a pandemic pivot and figure something out, and I did. What would you um, do? Well, I'm a tennis player, so I just I just oh. hit tennis balls against the wall and I and nice. I, you know, do pull-ups in the park, and that's great. And that mm-hmm. that's been perfect for me, but do you find that exercise is emotionally resetting and very necessary? I'm sure it is. Yeah. Like it's not, it's not anything. So it's not like a cathartic thing when I go and work out. It's more like if I don't do it for a few days, I start to feel worse. You know, like I start to feel this um, tug, like I need to go get my blood pumping. It just, it feels help. It feels physically really good it just feels like a necessary um you keep keeping yourself keeping yourself going you know you're getting the blood pumping it just feels like a very health uh, i mean obviously healthy thing to do and 
emotionally, yeah, it helped. I think it probably helps with keeping anxiety tamped down. Um, yeah, it's good. It's salutary. It's it's good in every way. There's nothing bad about it. Excellent. Right. And yeah. I, I wonder if it's, if it's linked to the creative process in, in terms of like, because I think clearer if I've been exercising and I wonder if, and I'm a writer and I wonder, I never thought about it, but I wonder if I write better if I've, if I've exercised, if my brain works better. You mean, you mean like directly after exercising? Not directly, but maybe like even a couple of hours later. Yeah. I don't don't really notice any such um, pointed um, effects like that. Cause I, I think I've just been doing some kind of sport or exercise all of my life. And there's never been a period when I haven't. So I don't, I don't know any other kind of life. And um, I just, I don't think I could, I think I would just dissolve into a lump of flesh if I didn't get exercise <laughs> every couple or few days. Yeah, I know. I totally get it. I feel the same way. Um, in terms of stepping out of that comfort zone, which um, I, I tried to do the same thing. Um, when you did the, let's go with the live stream and stuff. Was that kind of nerve wracking to be, you know, cause it's such a, it's so different than playing on a stage where you're kind of a moving target. I think on a, on a live stream, you're so, um, you know, the, the fixed gaze of, of, of a performer sitting in one spot. Did that feel weird to you or did you become accustomed to it pretty quickly? It was a little difficult at first. Um, but I, th- I think it was, I think it was just because I hadn't really done a gig in a year or, or so. And I was a little, and, and then, yeah, the, the setting was a little bit um, awkward at first. I had to get used to the space I was in. And, um, you know, I was, I had been practicing in my bedroom and then I got into this studio room which was a little bigger and I felt like a little bit naked and exposed and so I had them put some um baffles around me and make it a little cozier and then we got some cozy lighting and yeah you're just getting used to playing to no audience but understanding that there is an audience out there but you can't see them it was an adjustment but um I took to it pretty quickly and now I like it a lot and it's fine and I don't need to hear the clapping or anything and there's um I still feel like it's a shared experience because I there is a chat going on and I can I can choose to look over down at the laptop at the chatting and if I want to between songs or not and so I, I realize that the audience is out there and they're communicating and they're responding and I like it. It's cool. It's, it's, it's good for now. Yeah. It's pretty immediate in terms of, you know, what people are thinking and how they're feeling gets, you know, it gets, there's that sort of scroll of that, which is kind of cool. I would imagine it could also get maybe distracting too. Yeah. The first time I did a last year, I, I was afraid to look at it because I, I was just afraid someone would say something critical and it would just shatter my confidence and I would fall apart. But, um, I'm not actually that fragile, but I was a little bit afraid. So I didn't, the first one, I didn't really look at it until the end. And now I'm more used to it and it's, it's good. It's cool. It's, it's, it's a nice way to keep, keep the music alive, keep the legacy alive. 
Well, I, you know, I teach college and I, and I had to go from the classroom to the zoom room and I, I was, I sucked for the first, you know, eight, I think I got good somewhere around November. It took me like Mm -hmm. seven or eight months. And I think I wasn't used to being looked at like Mm -hmm. that, you know, where it's like, Hey, this is, it almost felt too intimate. Like, um, this is my office. There's my cat. That's my, Mm -hmm. you know, it, it just felt weird to me. And I, I'm better at it now, but it's still, sometimes it feels almost too intimate. I get that. I totally get that. How that could, yeah, there, I mean, just having just the camera, it's kind of can feel like um, an invasion, you know, and especially if you're at home, I, I, I'm able to go do these live streams at the studio a couple miles away, but um, yeah, I think it would be more weird doing it at home. Cause you're, that's your, you know, that's like personal private space. Are you doing from, you're doing from home. Yeah. You just said that. Yeah. I'm doing it from home and it, and it, and it's weird. Cause sometimes I'll forget to move like a bowl of cereal or, yeah. you know, or like there's a, you know, there's a baseball hat on the, I mean, whatever it might be. It just feels like it's weird. I, this is a weird thing to say. I almost don't want my students to know that I'm a human being. I get, I totally get that. I, yeah, I do. I feel for teachers. It's different for I think it's a lot different for you than it is for artists because artists are used to be artists are used to being looked at musicians, you know, we're used to being looked at or seen as an image or series of images and sounds, but you're just you and, and you're suddenly having to be an image and uh, be on camera. And it's, I can't, I, I feel for teachers right now. I really do. It's not if this is not that's not what you really signed up for the zoom teaching no and i mean and same for you like you know zoom zoom entertaining it's like a totally we've done these pandemic pivots um that have <laughs> that have sort of stretched what we were what we were expecting to give yeah and i think it remains to be seen how it's all going to affect our future lives some i mean of course, some some of this will continue into the future. Um, maybe even after the pandemic is hopefully gone, um, some of this stuff will maybe continue. You know, who knows? We don't know yet. Um, do you th- yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, do you think that this record would have come out as quickly if it hadn't been for the pandemic, or would it have gestated a little bit longer? I actually think it would. I would have put out something more quickly without the pandemic, because I because. Lately, I've tried to put out an album every year, but my last album, the police covers, I think, was 2019, I believe. And so I actually didn't really get this one out in 2020. So I I think that if I had been going to the studio as usual, I would have gotten the album out in 2020. But because I was doing it at home on GarageBand, and lear- while I was learning how to use GarageBand and doing all the troubleshooting and, and having tantrums about the technology, um, <laughs> it's, it really slowed me down. Plus, I'm, I'm pretty lazy working at home. I, I, there were days when I would work for half an hour only or an hour on the music. And whereas with the, with the studio, I book chunks of, you know, like days at a time. And so I because I'm on the clock, I have to go in and work 12 hours a day. So I get more done more quickly in the studio. When you just worked for a half hour, were you 
would you, were you kind of hard on yourself? Like, Oh God, I only did a half hour today or. Yes. I'm like, I hate myself. I'm such a lazy idiot. Like what, what, what is my problem? Why am I, why? (laughs) But yeah, I don't know. It's just like, I would certain, certain things seem to deplete me of energy. And like, if I'm doing something mathematical, like trying to work out, trying to transpose a guitar part onto the keyboard or vice versa, it, um, it feels like math to me and I hate math. And then I just need to just go lie down and take a nap after that. (laughs) (laughs) I always hated math. Yeah. I find that even in the recording studio, if I do something that is um, taxing for me, like, transposing a part from one instrument to another i i still have to lie down on the couch in the studio and just like close my eyes for a little while yeah it's a, it's a, has that always been a, a kind of response that you'll have to frustration i do i fall asleep but I, I get really ti- violently tired and i fall asleep when i'm stressed or when i've had to use my tiny brain too much i just like my my body gets tired <laughs> In in terms of your, I mean, you've always been so prolific, though. I, I would imagine that there's always been a balancing act of of rest and work. Yeah, I'm I'm a weird combination of contradictions. Like I'm a workaholic, but I'm also I feel like I'm a lazy slug. But I mean, people tell me I'm prolific, so I guess it must be true. Um, but I feel lazy sometimes, although. I do always try to keep working, but like I said, sometimes work, quote unquote work means like an hour a day on some days. Well, now that you are using the technology, do you think that like it'll speed the process up for you? Like has it, have you embraced it or are you still kicking and screaming a little bit with the, that sort of techie aspect of it? Well, as I, as I got used to it and got more comfortable with it and learned how to work out the glitches. Um, I think that now I can move more. I can move through it um, more easily and steadily, I think. Although I haven't really recorded anything since I finished the album. So um, I need to get, I've been focusing on these, like practicing for these live streams lately, but I do need to get back into the recording mode soon. You know, in a live setting with a crowd, you can read the room, you can play off their reaction, you can, you know, you can make sort of witty quips. Um, has that has that part changed a little bit with the live stream in terms of like between songs? That seems like that would fill me with anxiety of like, how do I fill that space? I kind of, I feel like the opposite might be true because when I'm on stage in front of an audience, I feel this pressure to fill the space between songs and I feel like I need to talk to people or be witty or just, you know, be a performer. Like, how you doing? How's everybody doing? I feel this. <laughs> I, I'm supposed to play that role, but I'm no good at it. So I think the live stream um, situation frees me up to where I can just, I, I feel more calm and I, between songs. I feel like I'm allowed to just, be casual or to take my time tuning my guitar or I can just sort of like chat um chat about things and I don't have to be I don't have to be larger than life about it I can just kind of 
be more relaxed and I think I'm allowed to do that in in that environment so I it's it's kind of kind of nice in that way yeah and that's surprising because I, I would have thought that it, it would be sort of anxiety making but when you put it that way I get how it how it wouldn't be yeah oh, since I'm alone I've been doing these alone without a band without accompaniment except my guitar I feel that there is not um I don't have that pressure I I feel like I'm alone with my guitar and there's a little bit of um freedom in that I think that if there's someone performing alone with a guitar there is um there is room there's room for me to kind of just go with the flow and do what I feel like doing. Are you, do you think that you are more creative now during the pandemic? Like has, has your creativity gone up? I think it's kind of consistently where it always has been, which is steadily creative. Um, I have a lot of ideas. Um, I, I always have, it's, it's kind of just the same. Yeah, it's interesting. I was talking to Kristen Hirsch a, a while ago and she's, I mean, she is on the road so much and that's such a huge part of her livelihood, like a lot of, like, a lot of musicians. And um, I hadn't chatted with her during the pandemic, but I, I know that um, I spoke to Tanya a little bit about it. There's a little bit of anxiety about like, Hey, this is how I make my living. This is how I'm paying the bills. Yeah. Um, has there been a sort of like financial anxiety on your end or do you feel pretty, chill about that whole art into art into groceries <laughs> translation first i want to say that i just the other day finished reading kristen's book finally rat girl I, I, I finally read it so good yeah it's really interesting um i knew i know her but not well she's she's kind of an acquaintance but um so yeah it was really interesting to read her 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 take on those things but i was i when i started doing these live streams a few months ago one a month um and i decided to not issue tickets and to rather just have a paypal donate button um and to let anyone come and watch them and not have to pay. I it was kind of an experiment to see, um, you know, if would would anyone pay? What would they pay? How would that work out? And it's and it was it has been really great. People have been really generous. And then you know the people the people who who can afford to pay more do pay more. And then they they take up the slack for the people who can't afford to pay anything. And and um, yeah, it has been really, really helpful, definitely. And I, I'm so, it's, it's really taken some of my anxiety away. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool to hear. I, mm-hmm. One of the weird things for me about this is that I'm, I'm really good at being alone. Mm-hmm. And that, I'm not so sure that's good. <laughs> like I start, I'm wondering if, you know, I'm wondering how healthy it is for me to be keeping just the company of myself. Have you, have you gotten not, not like to quote Matthew sweet, like sick of yourself, but is it, is it weird to just sort of be in your own company as long as you are now with this in this past year? 
no, this is my normal life. I've, uh, I've, I like you live alone with an animal. I have a dog, not a cat. And I have always lived alone. Um, and it's, it's my choice. I, this is this semi isolation is the way that I like to live. So the, this has not been an adjustment for me in that way. I, I, I think it's good to be alone. I think that um, if you're comfortable alone, I think there's nothing bad about that. I think that too many people are not comfortable with themselves and you need to be able to coexist with yourself. Otherwise, you know, things are not, things are not well. You need to be able to um, entertain yourself, be, I, don't, I lost my train of thought, but I don't, I don't think, I don't think it's bad that you like being alone. I think it's good. Yeah. I'm sort of like a very much, I've embraced that kind of lone wolf thing. Some people end up alone and they can't figure out what happened. I I'm like you, I chose that. It, it feels, mm-hmm. I kicked against it for a while. Cause I kind of thought, what will people think? I'm like the alone guy with a cat, but I do, I do find that it, it has been very conscious and I think I knew it. Uh, a while ago that that was more comfortable for me. Did you always know that that was, that was your choice? Well, I, I always gravitated to being by myself, but for years I, I was fighting that urge to be alone. And I was, you know, I was listening to all of the people. All, I was listening to history. I was listening to society all of these um, voices telling you, you need to pair up. You need to, you need to be in love. You need to, um, you need to share. You need to be intimate emotionally and otherwise you, this is what people do. There's something wrong with you if you don't want to do that. And so I did for years, I tried to play those games and to, to do that pair bonding thing, P-A-I-R bonding. And it just like always felt, it just filled me with so much anxiety and I felt it was so contrary to my true nature to try to fit into those roles that um, at some point I just finally decided, why am I fighting the need to be alone? Why, Why am I just not embracing that? And now I'm living fully in my solitude and I feel, I feel like, you know, I have friends, of course, friends are wonderful and I have people that I work with. It's not like I'm a hermit in a cabin in the woods. I live in Cambridge, you know, I'm not, um, I'm not a Unabomber. (laughs) Like, it's like, I think that to me, being alone feels like freedom. And it always did whenever I was, you know, if I was, if I, was dating someone I would always and we were together I would always be counting the minutes until I was going to get to go be alone again and people would make me think that there was something wrong with me but now I'm just embracing that the aloneness and I just feel I feel so free that's exactly how it has been for me where if I was dating I would I couldn't wait to get back home and, and just, yeah. I, right. I just craved yeah. that, that, t- and not that I had anything important to do. <laughs> it wasn't anything important. Yeah. But so why, why do 
I'm sure we're not the only two people with those having those feelings and 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 uh, you know why do I feel like there's a lot of people that are ignoring those their true natures and they're um just hooking up hooking up over the long term because they feel like that's what they're supposed to do or I don't know it's complicated yeah people, complicated and it's like there are other factors that there are things that factor into it other than love and attraction obviously there's you know money and stuff like that there's a certain romance to jane austen novels where you know it's so it's beautiful that sort of idea of romance and meeting someone and struggling to figure out if you could be together and then on the other end there's sort of emily dickinson those are two both two very big extremes of you know pairing up and being alone and i guess i'm sort of somewhere in the middle but i it's interesting i think i always chose people that i knew it was going to implode because ultimately i think i wasn't really interested in um, you know, in, in not being alone. I, I, I always liked, I remember one time I, I was dating someone and I couldn't wait to get home and I got home finally. I was so excited to be home and I literally just sat there eating a cupcake and I thought, this is what I wanted to do. <laughs> I know, oh my God. You sound, I know the feeling. You sound like, exactly, that was exactly my experience. Yeah, pretty much every time. I like that it was conscious though. I like that you embraced it you know, where you kind of went, okay, this is, this is who I am and this is okay for me. It was about the cupcake. It was, I had this thing where I, I was involved with someone who, who lived on Martha's Vineyard. Um, it's not Evan. People think that Evan and I dated and he's from, he, he lives in the vineyard, but someone, do you even know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I do. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, Evan's a friend of mine. He lives on the vineyard, but I was dating someone else on the vineyard who, who grew up there. And so I would go and stay with him for a few days on the vineyard. And then I would leave to go back to the city and be alone. And I would, um, you know, leaving the island would involve me going and getting my car in line for the ferry. I'd get in line and then I would, I would go and I had this ritual. I would go and get like a coffee and a muffin from um, this bakery near the ferry and then I would I would get a newspaper and then I would get in my car in the ferry line waiting for the ferry and I would read my newspaper drink my coffee eat my muffin and I just felt like I was in heaven like all the weight the weight of the world had lifted off me because I was alone again and I was leaving the island I get that 100 <laughs> <laughs> percent it involves um for both of us it involves like comforting comforting food as part of the as part of part of the fun of freedom yeah it's like relationship or pastry yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> i know and it's funny because you would say like here you are with someone charming and lovely who is on a beautiful you know part of the of the world and you yeah. think yeah but you know a, a muffin and the newspaper would would be more <laughs> i know i know but there's nothing wrong with us
I don't want to sort of necessarily think of myself as post romantic, but you know, I just, I turned 50 back in June and, and I kind of think like, but if I am post romantic, I almost think that's fine. I think it's okay. I, I call it post love. I am post love. And I think that there's nothing wrong with you. You can call it post romantic. Why not? That's like, I, I think of it as you think of it as um, you're being more highly evolved than other people because you've moved past that charade. You've you've evolved past needing it. It's like it's Zen, really. You're you are um, you are closer to Nirvana. Well, I like that take uh, quite a bit because one of my students told me that he was like, "Oh, you're like a lone wolf," and I said, "Yeah, I I am a lone wolf, man." And he said, uh, he goes, yeah, but the lone wolf dies first. And then he walked away. <laughs> I, is that even true, though? I looked it up. It is true. I think. Well, <laughs> I don't believe it. <laughs> fake news. That's fake, fake information. I don't believe it. I don't believe it either. Um, no, I don't think the lone wolf dies. Yeah, but the lone wolf dies sooner, but he's happier. He dies happy. Yeah, the lone wolf dies happy. That might be the name of my autobiography. <laughs> Why not? Uh, but it's comforting to hear you say that because I do. I do feel like you know, if I'm writing, I want to get home and I want to write and want to work on stuff. And you know, I think there's a great line in this camera obscura song where she says, "Relationships were something I used to do." Yeah, I think that that sounds to me like um, someone who has evolved. You know, evolved through that stage of life it it shouldn't be it shouldn't necessarily be a stage of life that continues for a whole life i think it's something that people can work through and get to the other side and at the other side is more freedom and more creative work and more fulfilling life i think and you can still be a really good friend and you can still share with people but you, there's not that um, that such a distraction of the relationship. You know, it's like a huge, huge stressful distraction from yeah. the important things. I I totally agree with that, and I've I've also found that as I've gotten older, I mean, there are some pleasures of getting older, and I think one of them is I've become better at saying no to things mm-hmm. that I normally would have said yes to just because I thought I had to. Yeah, that's that's something that definitely comes with age and wisdom. Learning learning how to say no and how how to say it without feeling bad about it. Have you gotten better at that too? Yes, yes, I have. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I mean, yes, I'm better at saying no. I am for sure. When you said yes, when you wanted to say no to doing things, was it just out of like? societal pressure or you felt like, Oh, I guess I'm supposed to go do this thing. Part of it was just my own um, conflict within myself. Like maybe this would be good. Maybe I should just go and do that with these people. You know, maybe I should, cause I might, might be good for me or I really don't want to, but you know, maybe I should just say yes. Cause people say you should say yes to stuff. And it was more like a lot of inner conflict. And then experience taught me that um a lot in a lot of those instances i i probably would have been better off having said no in the beginning 
Yeah. You find yourself in places where you go, why am I here? What am I doing? Yeah. Yeah. What is this? I, I think the root of that also is the fact that I, I used to care, I think, but I don't, I don't care anymore what people think of, of my decisions to not do something or do something. Yeah. And for me, I think there is an element of, um, there is this pervasive sexism mist that hangs over everything. I think that, and that makes me feel that when I or women are, are, are expected to um, have certain attitudes or to just be sort of pleasant or not angry, you know, to just be accommodating. And I had to get over that. I had to get over worrying about what people were going to think of me. Um, you know, but I said, no, they were just going to have to deal with it. And it didn't, it didn't, um, mean anything other than I just didn't, I didn't want to. Did you, did you sort of shed that like a skin or did that take, did that take time? It's still, it's still with me. I mean, I still feel sometimes that I have to be gentle with people because people still, um, there are people who just can't help taking things personally. And, um, you just, it's like a process of, you have to learn how to just speak clearly. You have to learn, learn how to speak think and speak clearly and then you have to learn how not to take things personally and it's like it becomes your duty to just be clear you have to be clear and not muddy things up with worry or with emotion yeah and i and i say you know it's nice not to care about what people think but every now and then when someone says something that you're sort of unguarded and it hits you in a way it sort of it's tough to walk it off at first where you go wow that that's a real judgment yeah, there. I definitely do. Still, I have emotional reactions to things, but I have to check myself and try to try to talk myself down from from things. You know, be re, be reasonable. Yeah, I I agree. I I talked to um, a couple people about. I spoke to Jonas Police Woman, and I talked to uh, Paula Cole and Bonnie Hayes, who were associated. You know, two of them with Berkeley, and 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 I can't remember where Joan went, but. Um, we were talking about, you know, music school as a, like a formal education of, of, with music. Um, I mean, what do you, what do you think now years later, good idea, bad idea? Is it better to get practical experience or do you think it's useful for someone who's an aspiring musician to go to a college and specialize in music? I, I really think it depends on the person and, and also I, th- I think that there are things that a you can get out of music school, even if overall it's not really your thing or if you're not really getting as much out of it as other people are. I think you can glean things from it. Like I I feel like I went to college because my, my dad really wanted me to get a degree and he offered to pay for my college if I would just go to college. He didn't care what college. So I ended up at Berkeley College of Music and I went the whole four years and I got the degree and, you know, I kind of did it for my dad, but I also just, I felt like I started this, I should just finish it. And I I felt like a lot of it was not going to be really helpful to me, but I was aware that some of it was going to be um, good 
a good part of my overall musical education and I learned some really practical tools like how to communicate with other musicians and how to just hear I really learned how to hear better how to hear um like intervals and how to pick chords out of how to pick notes out of chords that I was hearing and how to um just like practical stuff like that um and I got some really good vocal training which I had never had before but then I I went to I went to Boston University right out of high school I went to BU for one semester and I was miserable there and I thought I just wanted to die and, and because all I wanted to do was be in a band and I was so shy I didn't know how I had no idea how to how to find people to be in a band with and at BU I was just I felt so lost it's like this big city school and I was living in this dorm in a tower by that overlooked football field and I was in hell and I so I transferred to Berkeley and my goal in going to Berkeley was to find people to be in a band with and ultimately I succeeded in finding the other Blake babies at Berkeley and so I feel like for me going to Berkeley for four years was totally worth it because I met John and Frida who became my first band Right. So the, the friendships, I mean, the, the connections that you like, like Jonah's police woman was saying that Mary Timoney, that was her roommate and they just became, they're still best friends um, all these years later. Yeah. Um, that's, that's like John and Frida. Frida um, was not a student in Berkeley, but John Strong was a student and they're both. Um, yeah. Our friendship and our friendships have endured all this time. Frida's one of my favorite people and we we talk a lot and we still collaborate. I just sang on her her and her husband's band's new record. And so yeah, those relationships from Berkeley um were very, very important and have lasted this long. In terms of I mean, your dad must have been, I mean, a pretty cool guy to say like, as long as you go, even if it's music, I'm okay with that. Yeah, my dad was kind of, um, he was a radiologist, so he was a, he had that, he was like medical science guy, but he was also, um, he was also, he was complicated, he, he played piano also, he played a lot at home, he would play a lot of Scott Joplin, like ragtime music, and he, um, he, what was I going to say? He was also like he he taught me not to believe in or trust or trust authority. So he thought that, um, you know, he always taught me that I had value as an individual and that I should trust my instincts and not listen to the grownups because they don't know anything. They don't know any better than I do. And so I feel like that was really valuable lesson from him. Um, he, he basically just taught me like, do what you want. Um, trust your instincts. You'll be okay. But get a degree. He also wanted me to have a degree. <laughs> yeah. And he, and he, and by the way, was he, was he a Blake babies fan? Did you, did you give him? The yeah. He was so, he was so proud. And when he died, he died like, wow, a long time ago now it's, he died like 20 years ago, I think. And I've just recently been, uh, when he died, I, I, 
acquired a whole bunch of like boxes of stuff of his and and I was going through it recently and he he printed out and saved every single I think every single piece of press that I ever got from the very beginning like every every little thing he saved it in these files and it's just so touching that he did that is he was yeah he was really excited by it and really interested and he followed my career and he's very proud that's a that's a really when you found that out that must have been like ah <laughs> yeah I was like dad really that's so cute that's so that I mean that's like amazing like amazing that he put that much time and care into archiving everything you know oh that's incredibly moving that's really that's yeah. really sweet were, yeah. um when you were in Boston were you when you were trying to think about like I want to put bands together were you seeing like that scene was so fertile I mean. It was Scruffy the Cat and Del Fuegos and all those great, the Neats. I just started listening to the Neats for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, were, you, were you seeing shows all the time? I was seeing, a, yeah, I mean, I was kind of underage for a while, I think. When the Blake Babies got together, we were like, I think we were like 18. So, um, but yeah, we would see as much as we could. And the band's that I was really excited about were like Throwing Muses and Dinosaur, who back then were just Dinosaur before they had to add the junior. Yeah. And like, um, and then we met the Lemonheads who were starting out when we were. And um, yeah, just getting to see some of those bands in small clubs was so exciting. It's really exciting because no band sounded like any other band. It was like there was a very the scene was very cool because it wasn't really a scene. It was just like a bunch of really interesting bands doing their own thing without any influence from anyone else around them. When you guys got together and you started playing, did you feel embraced by the scene? Did you feel like, okay, now I'm a part of that fabric? It didn't, it didn't feel like there was like a scene to be welcomed into. Like I said, it felt like it was kind of like every band was just doing their own thing. And I mean, everyone was friendly and, and that the bands were supportive of each other, but it didn't feel like clicky or clubby at all. It was just like, we're doing our thing and these people are doing their thing and everyone's cool to each other. And, and I, I think the Blake babies maybe had a little bit of an inferiority complex complex because I felt we weren't as tough or as cool as some of the rock bands, like, like dinosaur was so loud and so cool and, so mind-blowing but Blake babies we were like more kind of people thought we were cute you know and and I I guess I always had we had a little bit of a chip on our shoulder maybe because people thought we were cute but um but we were really serious about our music and we worked really hard and I think that people were welcoming to us and we built up a following in town how in terms of for you being I would assume you introverted, right? Yeah. Being suddenly being, you know, entering into a performative life. Um, was that a, was that sort of a, a emotional whiplash? Was that, was that a tricky, a tricky move to go from, you know, watching the bands to being the band? Well, um, I think that it was, it was a relief to be able to communicate in that way because I was so, I was like pathologically shy. I was kind of really unable to communicate. And so 
being able to get up and play my music with my friends felt like it was such a relief. It was like, finally I can express something to people. You know, I can, it's a, it was a way for me to be able to present myself in a way that I couldn't do at parties or in social situations because I felt so awkward and uncomfortable. And by the time we were gigging, I had already gone through the, when I was in high school, I was in a cover band and I went through that terror of getting up in front of an audience for the first couple times. And it was, you know, once you, once you get up and do it, it's like you pop your cherry and you're not terrified anymore. And you get, you start, you're used to it. You know, you know, you can get up and do it again after that, after you've first done it. When you sort of, you know, when you, whether it's a live stream or it's a big show, do you feel when it's done, when the camera's off or when you leave the stage, do you need to really power down? You know what I mean? Like what's, what's the come down after that? Is that really like you need an hour or two just to kind of recharge? Yeah. Well, I, I always just want to, I feel, I feel this need to go to my hotel room. If I'm on tour, I want to get away. I want to get out of the club away from everyone and go be in alone and, um, that's how I decompress. It's like I need solitude after, after that intense um, experience of being around and among all that humanity, that kind of energy. I just need to go and decompress by myself afterwards. Yeah, I was, I was in the grocery store. I was in Whole Foods. And one of my students said, oh, hey, Professor Green. And I turned around and I was, I wasn't Professor Green. I was just a, you know, just a, like a 48 year old jerk buying cupcakes, you know? Uh-huh. And, uh, cupcakes again. Do you have a cupcake fetish or what? I like the cupcakes. Yeah. I like this. That's fine. <laughs> I should do, I should do muffins like you. No, cupcakes are beautiful. Okay, but, so, uh, sorry, go ahead. No, no. And so I'm you know, whatever I'm doing. And I, and I realized it was literally like being caught where I thought, how do I turn into the Professor Green character in the middle of the store when I'm clearly not him right now? And that was a that was kind of a weird. And I'm kind of extroverted, so it's not even that. But it's like I couldn't find the character. It felt really weird to me. Um, yeah, you, that we call that. Um, we in the biz, we call that being recognized. <laughs> okay, makes sense. Yeah. It's like always really it's always really jarring to me. It's like, whoa, or someone you know, it hardly ever happens to me. Like cause people don't really recognize my face. They recognize my name, but someone will be like, Are you Juliana Hatfield? And I'm also like, Whoa. It's like so jarring and I it's like, I never know how to respond. You know, it's like uh, yeah, yes, I I am. You know, it's all, I was it, yeah, it's like some some weird barrier is broken or something or yeah the per, there's some perception of a persona that doesn't exist right even and it's tricky for you because it's and me too it's it's our own names but it's not yeah. really us it's a projection it feel, yeah it doesn't feel like we ourselves are being addressed it's like the the persona is being addressed or recognized it's so funny to call it. So if you were if you worked out at my gym in the days where you and I both went to gyms, I would have recognized you for sure. Yeah, but you sound like you, you like it would have been e- like an easy interaction with you. Like you wouldn't have been weird about it. No, I wouldn't have. Been if you had said something, you know, I think it would have been like cool and easy. 
um, interaction. It'd be weird if I was like, I happen to have my earwig CD with me. Can you please? (laughs) (laughs) No, but I think think that you, yeah, there are interactions where you can sense that the other person is seeing, seeing me as a human being and not as the other thing. Right. Right. And, and I've, you know, it's funny, my mom was a therapist and if she saw one of her clients or one of her patients in a store, she would literally avoid them. Either she'd leave mm-hmm. or she would, because she couldn't find, I guess she couldn't really find that character or that or it just was too, it was too close for her. I understand that. I totally get it. Yeah. And it's, and I feel that in myself, I feel myself reacting if I happen to encounter, you know, randomly, someone who's really famous, you know, if you encounter a celebrity on the street or in a restaurant or something, I always get this, like, I feel a jolt in myself. Like it's that the celebrity sheen, like, or aura, it's a real thing. It's like an entity that you're, you're encountering the celebrity sheen and it's not, you're not, it's not the person you're, but you're feeling that other thing. And, um, it's real, you know, like I'm affected by it too. Like my heart will speed up if I encounter a celebrity. It's weird. Yeah, it is weird. Cause you almost feel that you know that person, but you obviously don't. Yeah. It's, you just know, you know, the, the, the thing, whatever it is that the, the name or the persona or the um, work, you know, the work. Yeah. The work, the work. Yeah. In terms of people saying uh, maybe it's a meet and greet or maybe it's someone stopping you in the grocery store and wanting to take a picture with you, like a selfie, which is a whole new, I mean, it's not new, but it's sort of a, a thing that was not happening in the, in the mid nineties. Um, is that harrowing as well? Or does that, does that make you feel kind of peculiar? That hardly ever happens to me. I mean, in, in my normal life, it's like, that's kind of something that never happens to me. People really don't recognize me, but when I'm on tour, it, I feel like that kind of just comes a little bit with the territory. Like at shows, you know, before or after shows, that'll happen. And I just accept it. I, I get it. That's that's part of it. But out on the street in the real world, I, I don't really have that come up very often. Especially in the Boston area, people are so low-key around here. Like, I don't think anyone's going to ask someone like me who's like um, very low on the celebrity totem pole. Like maybe if someone saw, I don't know, who's a celebrity, you know, around here, there are very few celebrities walking among us. So, I mean, but those celebrities, the quote, the quote unquote celebrities that live around here are so low key that they don't seem like celebrities. Like John Malkovich has a house in Cambridge and Peter Wolf lives in Cambridge. And I, I encountered them once in a while. And it's like, they just seem like normal people. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. That's, that's good to hear that they aren't bothered in, in that way too. Um, in, in terms of, in terms of friendships, I know you've, you've been friends for years with Evan and with John and Frida. What, what do you think the secret is to being a good friend? Um, hmm. Well, I think that, I think, well, if there's an acceptance of each other, there's, there's accepting um, the way you accept the way someone is in a way that an in, more an intimate partner 
is not always as, as accepting. I think intimate partners can be more judgmental and more um, tough on you, but friends are a little easier on you. I think you're, I feel that you can um, show your weaknesses and your ugliness around friends to, to a degree, you know, you don't want to, again, with the, with the intimate relationships, I think people, um, let down their boundaries too far. And, but with friends, there's a little bit more, you, you feel a sense that you need to have a little bit of, you have to be a little bit, um, respectful. There's respect and there's also acceptance and, that's, that's like this beautiful balance. Yeah, and that balance, I think, is preserving. Yes, I think that's why some intimate relationships flame out or explode or die or fall apart because there is that, I think there's a, too much lack of boundary and people just let loose too much and they show too much ugliness or they demand, they're too demanding and there's just too much pressure and it just, implodes or explodes but with I think with a friendship it's there's not so much pressure so you're able to just like relax a little bit more and um um you're not working so hard to maintain something it's more like a little more easygoing yeah and I find that if ever I lived with one of my friends that distance would break down it's always I think you shouldn't maybe you shouldn't live with your friends because then you can keep that you can you can preserve that sort of that sort of distance between you that needs to be there. Yeah, and I think that the long term friendships there's even often sometimes physical distance. Um, you know, Frida lives in Chicago and John lives in Nashville and I live in Cambridge and so we don't see each other all the time. And friendships have this great ebb and flow. You, you maybe don't talk to someone for a year and then you'll talk to them again and it's like no feels like no time has passed at all and it's like it's like riding a bike a french a good friendship it's like riding a bike you don't forget how to do it do you reach out a lot and do you talk a lot to your friends on the phone especially during this weird time i i i let sometimes i let a lot of time go by but um i think that's okay like a good friendship will endure years apart years without any contact and or or there'll be some kind of contact like maybe maybe an email or text or maybe a phone call now and then you just kind of check in you know you just checking in is good enough sometimes yeah no i i totally agree i it's interesting when i when i think about like growing up in the you know late 70s early 80s and thinking about like what is the most watching tv and thinking what was the relationship that i thought was the most appealing and i I always remember Kate and Allie, that sitcom with James. Yeah. Was that from the eighties, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I thought like, that looks cool to live with your pal. <laughs> that just seemed like a pretty cool relationship. That seemed the most cozy and the most like, we both had been through some terrible things. Let's mm-hmm. join forces and, and live together like this. That always seemed like the, a mo- the most enduring relationship that I was modeled on TV. Yeah, I, although I never really saw it. I feel like I didn't, I wasn't watching TV in the 80s. I missed, I kind of missed all the 80s TV shows. But, but it's funny that you mentioned, what's her name? What's the not Jane Curtin actress? Is it Jill St. James? Jill St. something. Yeah. Right. 
Damn, which it's not Jill St. John. Oh, Jill St. John? Is it? No, I, I don't know. But she, but I used to think that I used to like Macmillan and Wife. Yeah. Which was her and Rock Hudson as a married couple. But I always thought their marriage seemed really good because they were like really respectful of each other and they kind of each did their own thing. And, um, but then they would come together and be like, really playful and loving with each, with each other, but it wasn't like too intense. It seemed like kind of like a friendship. And I always thought like it was a really cool TV marriage. You're right. That was, I remember that show. God, I forgot all about that. That was a great show. Um, and they, there was something really sweet about them. Yeah. Yeah. Like you felt like, I don't know, maybe it was the sense that the actors really liked each other. I don't know. I don't know if they did or not. They sure seemed to. They, they had a, they had a great energy together. You're right. That's right. Yeah. I, all about that show. That was a really interesting show. I loved that. Um, well, I'm you know I'm super excited about the fact that you're as prolific as ever. I'm glad that you're you're um, embracing these new ways of doing things because um, the the flexibility I think is such a key issue um, yeah. in, in in life and during a pandemic. Yeah, you have to um, you must be flexible. You have to learn how to. Um, adjust, adjust to the, to the now, to the reality of the now. And do you think you'll, you'll feel comfortable touring again? Is that something that you could, you could see happening? Yeah, I think it'll be good to get back out there at some point. There's, cause you can't re, you can't, um, you can't recreate the feeling of loud electric energy um, in a room with a bunch of people, you know, like you can't, recreate that virtually there's something about the the volume and the electricity and the human exchange of energy that's magic can be magic yeah and and there's all by the way you know how you there's something there's a theory that if you that every memory you have is a memory of a memory so that's why it kind of erodes over mm. time mm. And so like, you know, like if you're remembering something, you're just remembering how you remember it. And so every time it's like, it's like making a tape of a tape of a tape of a tape. So the 10th tape that. doesn't, doesn't resemble anything but hiss. Yeah. Um, but I remember, and tell me if I'm crazy. I remember seeing you in San Francisco with on, this is the bill in my brain. And I may have made it up. It was the charlatans, kitchens of distinction and the Blake babies. Is that possible? I, I don't, I remember the Charlotte. Yeah, doing a gig with the charlatans. Um, I don't remember Kitchens of Distinction, but that's very possible. But yeah, that was that was a really bad time for us because my because Frida, I think Frida had quit the band, and my I think my brother was filling in, and he just didn't know the songs, and it was like we were doing this big gig with the charlatans, and it was like holy shit, we don't we don't have our drummer. So for me, I just remember that was a bad time, but. Yes, that happens. Yes, your okay. memory is right. <laughs> All right, some things are still intact. That's that was a we weird, random lineup. I don't know how we got that gig at that point. Yeah, because that would have been what? That would have been like... 89 or something. Nine, yeah. Yeah, I don't know how that came about. Someone off got us on the bill somehow. And that was the Warfield in San Francisco. Yeah, yep, that happened. Well, you guys were great, and so in spite of the in spite of the no drummer, you were great. Um, but I, yeah, what a strange what a strange bill, right? Yeah, definitely. And then I saw you on the reunion show with I think Wheat opened up for you guys when I yeah. saw you. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, all right. So my memory is intact. I'm not remembering memories. No. Okay. Um, thank you so much for doing this with me. It's so fun to chat with you. I, I've, um, I've been looking forward to talking to you for a long time. It's cool to have you on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was really nice chatting with you. Enjoy the muffin. Okay. Enjoy your, your um, cupcake. I enjoyed that conversation. Juliana Hatfield, so cool. Uh, get her new album, Blood. You can pick it up at American Laundromat Records, uh, alr-music.com, or go to Juliana's website, julianahatfield.com. One L, one N, and one H. Her new album is easily one of the best of 2021. Uh, you need it in your life. So go out and get blood. You can visit me at alexgreenonline.com. You can find out what makes our radio station tick at bombshellradio.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ember's Editor or on Instagram at Ember's Podcast or just email me, editor at stereoembersmagazine.com. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. I defy you to name one that we are not on. I'm sure there are plenty by the way. Uh, but we're on the big ones. We're on uh, Google Play, Apple Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify. So find us there. Subscribe. Maybe leave us a rating, a nice comment or two, tell a friend. It sounds like a lot of things, but that whole checklist can be done in under 10 seconds. Uh, let's close the show with a longer listen to Juliana Hatfield's Mouthful of Blood, which is taken from her new album, Blood. Enjoy it, and thank you as always for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast only right here on Bombshell Radio. If I say what-